Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. Today, we have with us Leo Chang from Cream Finance. Leo, thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely a longtime fan of what you guys do at Index Co-op, and we at Cream are big supporters of the DPI token. Yeah, we appreciate that. Thanks, Leo. So what we typically like to do when we start these off is just get a background of you. So can you explain your journey into DeFi and crypto and maybe what did you do prior uh, to that? Yeah, I came from a long, I think, uh, work history of technology, generally speaking. So I studied economics uh, in college and uh, in the Bay Area and then subsequently went to work in Silicon Valley. I am I, I indexed a little bit older than most of the crypto crowd. So I was uh, at uh, Applied Materials when I first got out of college and I worked at the uh, did some rotational program in like a finance position. So more like corporate FP&A, not like actual banking or anything like that. And then wanted to try something different, went to Apple for a little bit and then went to business school. And then after that had been on the hardware side of consumer consumer technology and then made a pivot like a very true san francisco story i went to burning man met some cool people i, I really enjoy hanging out with and then they, they just ended up joining a, a startup that was launched off my couch in san francisco that did a bunch of cloud compute web 2 stuff in the continuous integration continuous deployment so so devops stuff like basically automated software testing and that's where we met the Coinbase team and I started getting into I, I bought my first Bitcoin in, in 2014 but I didn't really do much with it I, I kind of just was really embarrassed that I bought at, at the, the local high and I just like you know what just don't tell anybody about this and uh, yeah and then 2017 I came around and I got this email about Ethereum and I thought, hey, what is this thing? And I've been working on Amazon Web Services backed based kind of kind of uh, DevOps services. And so I was super excited when I heard, hey, there's a token associated with open distributed compute. And so I just dove head in and luckily the startup that I was at at the time was was uh, being picked up by General Electric. So I had some time to look deeper into crypto and I just dove head in in 2017 and never looked back. So I've been involved with uh, some of the NFT things, but my previous project prior to Cream was actually Machi X, which is still around as a DAO now, uh, where we fractionalized music copyrights and in 2018, 2019. And uh, during a bear market, nobody wants to collect anything. So, you know, music copyrights was interesting, fractionalized, but I would think we're a little bit ahead of the curve on that one uh, at the wrong market timing. And then just been DGen farming really in 2020. And then we came across and said, look, you know, there needs to be some things here that products that for, for the DGEN farmers that's not being offered. And so we launched Cream Finance and, and you know, I was still DGEN farming. That's when we thought, hey, you know, this Wi-Fi token is pretty useful. Let's let's add Wi-Fi onto our markets. And then it became like this YUSD thing is pretty cool. And then this YE thing is kind of cool. And then all these other governance tokens are pretty cool. We started adding them on, adding them on, adding them on. And uh, yeah, and that, that's kind of the genesis story of, of, of Cream. Yeah, so that leads me to one of our questions is, how do you decide which tokens do make it onto the Cream uh, interface? Yeah, initially it started out as just token voting thing. So true to the form of governance tokens, we basically said, look, go ahead and put up proposals if you want. And we ran into a few stumbling blocks like not setting a quorum so or not setting a yeah a quorum or a minimum requirement threshold and we're getting some spams things just basic learning pains of governance and then as we started moving along we started getting that going well and then it became like well do we really want everybody voting exactly on listing or should we have some kind of listing committee so we then created the listing committee and that was working pretty well and then uh, we're also happy to see that Ave, you know, did the same thing after us with their risk DAO, which we agree. It's like you don't really have the Federal Reserve, right? You have the Federal Reserve setting interest rates. You don't have humans voting on citizens voting on what the interest rate should be. And I think from that standpoint, getting tokens listed should be the same process where you have a few folks who have varying understanding of how things should work, but acting in the interest of the protocol, acting based on good liquidity depth. Generally, we look for having you have to have some kind of reasonable amount of amm liquidity so that in case of liquidations liquidators can have somewhere to sell the tokens into and then on top of that also make sure that it has really strong decentralized oracle coverage so mostly around chain link or or band protocol and so if you have those things good liquidity depth and amm you have good oracle coverage 
then that's a very good start. But if you don't have those two things for your project, then it's going to be really difficult to have a market created on Cream. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And Cream is a fork of the compound finance protocol or code. Can you explain to the audience what does that mean to fork code? Or what does it mean to fork compound? And how do you do that? And how do you do it successfully, as successful as Cream has done? Oh, yeah. Uh, and thank you, uh, first of all, for, for that compliment there. But yeah, I, mean, I think forking um, is an interesting terminology in the developer space. And I know that not everybody in this space comes from a developer background. I, I'm not a developer. I just so happen to be in the DevOps space previously. So I got to learn a lot about this, which was a good fundamental like uh, building block for me to, to really be able to understand blockchain and, and crypto well. But forking basically means you you copy the code because everything here, a lot of these, these code bases are open source. So anybody can go ahead and create a GitHub account and go ahead and, and make a copy into your own uh, GitHub account and then start building off of that. Uh, so in the, in the in, so really like open source software and it's, also as it applies to crypto space, but not specifically to just the crypto space. Anybody can go ahead and fork open source code and, and building something of their own. And depending on the kind of terms and conditions of the licensing, you know, make you know, make sure you do that correctly. So on our case, we failed to label this thing uh, at the proper licensing attribution. So first, the first contact with the with the compound team specifically as it relates to Cream was them reaching out saying, hey, wait a minute, you guys didn't attribute this to us. And we're like, oh yeah, we said it in our blog, but we should definitely put it on our, on our front page. So we, that was one of the things we did. And that actually led into the initial conversation with, uh, with the compound team as well that, that further developed into a, a fairly cool story there. But, but I think in terms of forking properly, um, the basics, technically speaking, you know, you need to make sure you understand what the pieces are doing um, before you kind of start forking things. And then there's also the business side of forking things, which is attributing the code properly. Uh, and then possibly, you know, taking down the team some a little bit of benefit to recognize their efforts in building the thing because you could certainly take it for free, but you should really shouldn't do it just like that. Yeah, and so what is your relationship like now with the Compound team and Robert Leshner? We we're good friends. I, I think uh, Robert's one of our biggest supporters, and I, I know you know on the surface it may not make much sense, but really the journey was very unique. So my co-founder Jeffrey Huang, he comes from the the, the music world. And so, you know, previously, our, the thing we tried was the, the Machi X thing, where we tokenized music copyrights in a, in a kind of more of a commercial way. And so the whole idea of giving royalties back to the original creators definitely stuck with us. You know, Jeff Huang is a, a musician himself, so he certainly understands that and how in the music industry, you know, like, like YouTube and these other, um, YouTube, uh, TikTok, I mean, TikTok started this way, YouTube started this way, that they're now paying royalties, but they certainly didn't. And they just kind of, you know, made their money off of the back of musicians. And you think about uh, when YouTube for, first sold for you know, a bunch of money to Google, they also made their technology work off the back of content creators and they never paid anything back. So in that same way, um, when we got into a conversation with Robert, uh, basically, we gave them 25% of the team token allocation just to say, look, you know, you guys built this really cool thing. And we chose Compounds Code 2 because it's been running since 2018 with no with no major incident. So the thing has stood the test of time. So we thought if we wanted to fork anything, that was the code base we wanted to try. And luckily, Robert and the Compound team were very generous to say, look, you know, we wouldn't just take this for free. What can we do to help you? And he said, look, we know this is highly complicated, the code base, and that we know that we could really use your help in keeping it safe. So they became officially our security and technical advisor. And it wasn't like it was it wasn't that we negotiated that deal. It was more like, hey, look, we're just going to pay this tribute and you owe us nothing for these tokens because you built the thing. And then they came back and said, hey, let us help you. Uh, let us help you guide and be, be safe. So if you actually look at some of the tweets, the first one that Robert said was like, you know, we don't officially endorse this thing. They have come out to say that they're using our code and that's it. And then secondarily to that, we announced that they're our technical and, and security advisor, which is cool. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a somewhat unique story. And I think that anybody that's forking anybody else's code would do well to basically pay it, pay it forward and pay it back to. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. I don't think a lot of people know that story about the relationship between Cream and yeah. Compound. And so y'all weren't concerned that Compound, you know, you gave them all these Cream tokens. You weren't concerned that they might dump these in the market? 
Well, we, we talked about that, and it's, it's definitely a bunch of the tokens up front. And we were looking for that to possibly happen, and we were kind of like, well, if it happens, it happens. It's okay. Um, but really, they were in it for the long run. They they put a bunch of it into the, the one, two, three, four long-term four years long-term staking pool and um and also we 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 chat with them when they you know they they, we do ask them questions about you know how did you guys set this up or is it how do you look at this token and uh whenever we and and then i think what's also important to note though is that as we started taking that code base to address the long tail of assets we did then end up also building out uh, additional features that they didn't have which was the the supply cap and then later on the collateral cap because as we start addressing long tail assets safety is a concern um and and since we're addressing riskier token choices than compound um we then start started building out these other aspects that they didn't have so we started branching off that and then subsequently the uh, well before before the collateral cap actually the iron bank that uh, protocol to protocol lending portion that's also something that they didn't have and then we later on bolted on uh, flash loans and we certainly welcome compound to take a look at the code and uh, i think one of our devs might have even submitted a pull request but you know they created the original thing we added on uh, everybody's welcome to to use any of this stuff okay yeah and you you touched on the iron bank and that's definitely something that we want to discuss uh, here in a little bit mm-hmm. but just to continue with the forking process why did you choose to fork compound rather than ave i feel like you kind of had to choose between those two possibly yeah right yeah so compound has a longer history of being around with no incident Um, not that anything bad has really severely happened to ave either Uh, but at the time anyway a year ago it was like yeah i mean ave was going through this transition between lend and ave and you know i I remember back early on when compound first came out dharma had this similar peer-to-peer lending system against compounds pooled model and then Ave or back then ETHLEND at the time rotated their transition into the pool model after going to the peer-to-peer route. So we feel like if we're going to do the pool model, it might as well be the one that that's withstood a longer test of time and having had you know billions of dollars on there and not fail. I mean, in some ways, you could look at that as a huge, gigantic bug bounty, right? If you got a billion bucks there and nobody's really taken it, then it's probably pretty safe. Yeah, that makes sense too. And so I think when you look at Ave Compound and Cream from a TVL and, and market cap standpoint, Cream is, is third in the space from a mm-hmm. lending borrowing standpoint. How do you feel like Cream differentiates itself from Ave and Compound? And do you see any other protocols giving Ave Compound and Cream like a run for their money? Yeah, I, I think the main differentiation here is that we, so somebody actually, I was on an earlier call today and the guy said to me like, oh man, yeah, I, I just was using you guys a lot because I first started on Compound, and but I was too degen, so I went to Ave. And then I was degening there until I found you guys at Cream that I could degen even harder. So when I think about this, our position has always started with, and it still is, the kind of riskier or faster moving slash riskier also of uh, compound Ave and cream. And in that trio, I think that our position continues to be fast moving, addressing the use cases. Um, if you look at the the amount of chains that we're deployed onto now, certainly we're live now on, on Ethereum and also BSC and Phantom and Polygon. Uh, we've also deployed on Arbitrum. So we're fast moving, we experiment with things, we run a, a validator node and and uh, neither Compound nor Ave run validator nodes to my knowledge. And um, so our differentiation point, where we're always reading the needs of the user and we try to move fast to address them. I think it's worked out okay so far, uh, continue to stay on the edge of the innovation for DeFi and pretty proud of what, what we've achieved so far. But definitely, I think it, it's just, it's just the beginning, right, With for DeFi. So it's going to be good. We're looking to continually push the envelope on, on the latest features that, that the users need, but definitely uh, doing it safely. Yeah, I feel like we definitely are at the beginning for DeFi. I feel like for DeFi, we've been trying to play around and just figure out what works for so long. Mm-hmm. And I feel like finally we figured it out and we're starting to build on top of that, which is exciting. And kind of in that on that same point, Ave and Compound are starting to cater to institutions a little bit more. Do you yep. see Cream playing in that space? 
ever? Yeah, and it's, um, it's certainly something that is it's not just being discussed, but it's actually under development right now. I think it's uh, it's under development in some sense and, and in other sense. So depending, I guess, depending on how you look at it. So on the Iron Bank side, the protocol, the protocol lending piece can also be applied to institutions. That's the space that we're, we're exploring now. And then that, so that's more specific to the Iron Bank, whereas the Cream V1, we've been calling it. So the Iron Bank is on yearn.fi slash lend and Cream V1 is generally any markets that's on app.cream.finance. So depending on which RPC endpoint you set to on the app.cream.finance, you would then see the local markets to uh, any of those those uh, those different networks. And so we're definitely collaborating with one of our stablecoin partners to work on some kind of institutional-friendly, whitelisted KYC-type direction. I think that while some people like to be purists about this and say, you know, in DeFi, like, uh, you, you should never do that. I, I think the way we're looking at it is you kind of have to play along and have these options at the least rather than just wholesale say, yeah, no, we're not playing in that game with the regulated space. I think that would be silly. Okay. Yeah, and let's touch on the Iron Bank. That's, it feels like it's a partnership or maybe a joint venture. I'm using legacy finance terms right now. But sure. what does it mean uh, to be part of the Yearn ecosystem for Cream? And how did that partnership start? Yeah, it's very. That's another interesting story. I, I feel like we're very lucky to have just basically been... I mean, for lack of a better term, almost mentored in some ways by some of the folks that are in the DeFi space and pioneering ahead of us. And, you know, so I've spoken earlier about Robert and we really appreciate Robert and team building the thing and then subsequently helping us out. Um, but then I think we did catch the attention of Andre Cronier early on when we listed, we're the first platform to support Wi-Fi for a long, for a long time until Ave came in. And the, we were lucky in November last year to be merged into the Yearn ecosystem. So I know that what is what does it mean to merge and is it even meaningful if there's no transaction on the token side, if there's no kind of economic tie-in exactly the way that traditional companies and traditional industries would work. And it's been kind of a big experiment, but really I, I think it's, it's just uh, the ability to trust is much higher because... Uh, the way it happened was there was some discussions around with Andre and then quickly the idea came up and we thought, okay, cool, uh, let's go ahead and just do this. So within like two, three day span, it just got closed out. And then when the when the actual blog post went out, like within an hour of the actual blog post going out, we were brought into all the Yearn channels. So we work very closely with the Yearn team directly, but also all the other Yearn ecosystem partners. We have regular operational kind of catch-up calls with all the, the members on like uh, like Pickle, Acropolis, uh, uh, Sushi, us, and, and Yearn. And that's been very informative too. Like we started thinking about, well, should we go on this chain? Should we go on that chain? There's a lot of coordination that's going on. So the amount of trust that's brought to us and the, and the integration through this merger has made a very, uh, has very, very strong, if you want to call it a partnership, you could do it that way as well. Uh, but certainly we're always thinking about how um, should it be some kind of governance token exchange or anything so that our treasuries are more aligned as well? And then from a governance standpoint, does that allow us to basically defend each other if it comes to some kind of voting? So that's also another concept we're exploring. But I think being a part of your ecosystem is fantastic. I personally learned a whole bunch. And then I know the team has as well. And then on the product side, without this uh, merging into your ecosystem system, the Iron Bank probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, Wi-Fi is just an incredible protocol, and I think it makes waves even in the traditional finance space. I've, I've heard people discuss it as well. So can you explain what the Iron Bank is? What are the risks that users might encounter supplying tokens to the Iron Bank? Yeah, so the Iron Bank started at conceptually as something that's more of a blue chip market of blue chip tokens whereas so it's it's by closer to you know ave compound on the risk spectrum than say cream v1 where all the long tail assets are added so by removing the long tail aspects of this the iron bank lending platform is theoretically safer from you know having this risk of adding in long tail assets and having them kind of blow up because uh, in the traditional pool model or not, in the pool model setting with with ave and compound and us 
generally speaking, your weakest token is your weakest link, and that one can take down the whole platform. But that's also why we built a collateral cap to prevent that exact thing happening on Cream V1. So on on Iron Bank, we have a token selection that's really based on what our borrowers want to use. So Iron Bank is a protocol to protocol lending platform. Uh, although users, uh, you know, EOA accounts can also access it. So it's the, we're building it for the mindset of the usage use case of uh, protocol to protocol usage. So the whitelisted projects on there right now are the uh, urine vaults. So the urine strategy and urine vaults can be borrowing from there under, in an under collateralized or uncollateralized fashion. And then Alpha Homara V2 is also the other partner that we have uh, borrowing from Cream, uh, sorry, from Iron Bank. And so um, the idea is that we would, with the Iron Bank, be the uh, liquidity backbone for all of DeFi. And so that you know, much the same as how there would be like a like a B2B enterprise level tier of banks versus your retail banks. We're pushing Iron Bank toward that direction. So eventually we can provide liquidity to us, to you know, any DeFi projects that make sense on an automated protocol to protocol level. Yeah. And so how would you think that Index Co-op could utilize the Iron Bank? Yeah, right now, DPI tokens are already on both Cream V1 as well as the Iron Bank. And I think that's really cool. We're, we're definitely big supporters of DPI token. And right now, I think the Index Co-op could probably do something like a, like a leverage token, like a leverage DPI token strategy. So much like the FLI leverage token suites that you have, if you did want to have a leverage DPI token, you can construct that either on the Iron Bank or on the Cream V1, which they both exist. And I, you know, it's protocol to protocol lending, and I come from the traditional finance space. I kind of think of a way, you know, is there a way that the Index Co-op could get a line of credit to see liquidity for a new project that we're launching? Or is is that kind of how the protocol to protocol lending works? Uh, well, the protocol to protocol lending, let me expand on that one a little bit. It, it's, uh, I thought, you know, it was a, it was a really good idea in the sense that if you look at something like the urine vaults, right? So if you put the very traditional first way yield farming was when Compound first launched your comp token and people could wrap their die loans to basically leverage on the amount of the, uh, comp tokens that they receive and then harvesting the underlying for more of uh, harvesting compound for more of the underlying, uh, whether that's die or USDC or ETH or whatever. Another question we have is similar to how tokens get listed on Cream. Yeah. You do have a listing council. Why did Cream decide to create a listing council? And does that listing council also have authority, I guess, over the Iron Bank? Oh, yeah. So the listing council, yeah. So we didn't want to make it so that initially we had Cream token holders vote directly on what tokens got listed. But then it was like a lot of governance overhead for the users. And so it became a little bit of voter apathy. And then, then we started thinking, wait a minute, like, you know, if it's just the same as how the, the Federal Reserve doesn't have the, the population voting on interest rates, we, we really, you know, maybe if we, it's not the best idea to have just a layperson, if you will, uh, go in and, and select these things. So the listing council made a bunch of sense because we brought in folks that there's a, there's a good spread of people in there that, you know, have banking backgrounds, that have smart contract, you know, capabilities to understand smart contract, they could do the DDing. You know, one of our other listing council, listing committee members has like a PhD in you know, crypto network valuation, et cetera. So we really brought in the experts and, and provided, you know, they do get compensated with some cream tokens. And though that way they can help us make the right decisions as to not just the tokens to list, but do the right research behind the tokens, as well as making sure that the numbers that we're setting are correct. So the parameters we're setting correct. And so I think having the listing committee really helps us streamline the process to move faster, as well as to make better decisions. But just like any other governance structure, I think if really need be, we can also vote in and vote people out through proposals if the token holders seriously feel like changes need to be made. Yeah. So actually, I just remember the thing we were talking about earlier, it was that uh, the example about the Iron Bank real quick is that just like how the urine die vault 
would deposit money in and farm and harvest the comp tokens, you know, having a uh, uncollateralized or undercollateralized loan that we provide to whitelisted list of partners like the Yearn Vault, we're able to uh, allow a higher return, right? So if you think of every dollar into the Yearn Die Vault as like an equity piece, essentially if they borrowed another you know 0.9 die from the iron bank that's like a like a senior debt and so when they go in there and, and um, do their yield farming through comp the uh, if anything were to go wrong then uh, the first loss would go to the equity holder it's like traditional industries and then so that the iron bank always gets paid back and, and then as much as possible so that was the example i was going to give earlier i just remembered okay yeah and i think there's a lot of people in the space that feel like under collateralized Lending is the next unlock for DeFi. Yeah, how do you see that happening on a on a much larger scale? Yeah, I, I think the idea though that like you could program you could see programmatically where the money is supposed to go. So if you look at the going back to the urine vaults for example, again we know by looking at the strategy that the money can only go into these certain places. So I think it's really no different than saying a loan that is earmarked for a particular thing. I think uh, home mortgage loans come to mind, right? Like when you go ahead and apply for a home mortgage loan, I, the, the applicant never actually touches the money. So you can't go ahead and, oh yeah, this is my house. And then you go buy a Lambo with it. Like it doesn't work that way, right? It goes right into the escrow and the user that borrowed it never goes. Then that's what that kind of guarantee on the usage of funds allow us to better assess the risk around this loan. So as we, as we continue to move forward, reliance on smart contract automation plus transparency is going to help us get to the, a better use of, of under-collateralized loans. I think it's interesting that um, some level of trust inevitably needs to happen and that explorations in the on-chain activity, on-chain behavior as a, as a metric of getting credit score, I think is, is a very fascinating space. We've been talking to ArcX, Kerman Coley over there about the, the DeFi passport concept. And I think that's a very interesting concept there because you can still discriminate users by, I mean, by giving like VIP services or preferred rates for accounts that have proven to have to be deserving, right? They've done things correctly. They've never been liquidated or, or they, they've had large credit lines of debts out there that they're doing well without bringing in the other things that you really don't want to be discriminate, discriminating against like the protected categories. And so I really think that this allows potential innovation path and also product differentiation for the different teams, different projects to experiment with different angles. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the industry plays out in the next year or so. Uh, you know, teams like Maple Finance, what they're experimenting with, with the, with the what do they call it? They have a name for that, not the delegators. But yeah, they're, they're basically people managing batches of loans. Interesting. Yeah. And in your example with the mortgage, I had never really thought of it, but that escrow account in a way is a similar to a white listed wallet address. Innocent. That's right. So, you know, if you know where the money's going, right, roughly speaking, if you know where the money's going, then then you, you kind of can assess the risk better. But if I just basically said, you know, oh, here's just a bucket of cash, like, please don't screw it up. Like that, that's really not a good way oh, yeah. to do that. But yeah, pool, pool delegates, that's the idea that I think Maple Finance brought in, and that's interesting. Basically, saying here, here's like a, it's like almost like a guarantor or someone who who can go ahead and understand the risks better. That's really interesting to me. Thanks for sharing that. So our next question is essentially, how does Cream make money? What revenue streams do you have driving, I guess, revenue to your treasury, and how does that add value to the the Cream token holders? Right. I, I think that. So we actually did a, a Q2 quarterly report. It was going to be our first published quarterly report. And we didn't end up pushing it out because of the recent kind of just attention from the regulators. And we're like, well, we do feel like we're sufficiently decentralized. But obviously, you know, we're all we're not, we don't spend all our time talking to lawyers and you know, just to be a bit more conservative, we didn't end up publishing this uh, said report, but I think this is probably a good place to go over some of the highlights from there. And we make our, our most of the protocol fees come in through the interest from the protocol. So um, yeah, I can actually attach specific numbers to this thing. So in, in Q2, April, May, June of 2021, uh, the total borrow interest was uh, $13.1 million. And out of that Borrow interest 10.9 was was paid out to the suppliers. So in the quarterly basis, we've netted about almost well 2.162, so 2.2 million dollars in protocol fees, and that's just the protocol fees alone that we've collected. 
And then on top of that, we've also been treasury managing and making sure that the protocol fees are a cleared out into stable coins, because, you know, if you like the high volatility of this, of the industry at all, we, we need to make sure we survive, right? Like the thing that can put projects and companies under is they run out of money. So the first things first, don't run out of money, continue to be able to pay the people that are doing things. So we have been actively treasury managing through the time that we've been around. Um, so to build a, a stable coin based protocol fee position that can keep the protocol around. And so the protocol fees was 2.2 million. And then we also been running validator nodes between BSC and, and Phantom. And that brought in another, so we started that in May. So even in just May and June, part of May and all of June, we brought in another 320K in validator uh, rewards there. So the total proceeds was just uh, $2.7 million in Q2. And our operating expense was about um, half a million dollars, 500K. Uh, in Q2, so we we netted about 2.2 million dollars of of you can call it I guess protocol net profits or anything. And as it relates to the token holders, we have not been distributing protocol fees, but that's actually a very interesting point. Our ice cream tokenomics are almost done. Uh, in fact, they're about to be deployed. So when that comes out, then users can can take the cream tokens and the very same way that VE tokens work, you can stake your your cream for what we're calling ice cream. And if you have an ice cream token holder, which are non-transferable tokens, just like VE curve, then we're basically moving the governance structure to that front and um, making sure making the governance power, making sure the governance power go to long-term stakers of cream and in return distributing the protocol fees into 50% of the protocol fees into the ice cream model. So so stakers of, of uh, people that, that stake their cream into ice cream, invested ice cream, invested cream tokens into ice cream uh, can then enjoy some of these uh, protocol fees. Well, I love the name, ice cream. And I think that's, <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite things about DeFi is that, you know, the numbers that you just said, these are very real numbers. This is, this is real revenue yeah. that's being, you know, driven to your treasury. And we've got protocols that are named after a ghost and Food tokens, sushi and cream, <laughs> yep. and uh, yeah, that's that's just the fun part about the space is that we we do take ourselves very seriously, but we understand that I don't know, we don't really have to all the time, which is nice. Right, right, and I, I think you touch on a very important point here is that this thing is is actually making positive. Like we're 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 we don't need to like you know raise funds or anything to keep going because the protocol fees, like the efficiency of this Web three structure. I, I'm just constantly. I talk to my Web two friends too. I'm like, look. You know, the same thing that Web 2 did to, to Web 1, Web 3 is doing to Web 2. Like, you just have all this efficiency and, and you know, we're able to be profitable. Like, like that's pretty amazing to, to be like, you know, what one-year-old fintech company do you have that's making over $2 million in profits, you know, a year later? Not a lot Not $2 of $2 million dollars a quarter. $2 million, a $2.2 million in a quarter, right? And still growing, so, yeah. yeah. Not not a lot. So, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's been a lot of talk and uh, a lot of movement towards layer twos in DeFi, yep. but and we can touch on that in a second. But I, I feel like y'all are very much a multi-chain protocol with yes. Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, Polygon, and Arbitrum, which is a layer two. And why do you feel like it's important to have a presence on all of these different chains in L2s? Yeah, we ultimately we want to serve DeFi users where they have needs, and in the very same vein, where we're thinking, hey, wait a minute, how come Wi-Fi is not available on a lending market? In fact, why is it that the lending market only has roughly seven or eight tokens at the time when we started? You know, and and I think in order to better serve the users, we need to be where the users are. So, well, Compound's going to their multi-chain and a different strategy, and then obviously deployed on Polygon, but I think being fast, uh, fast moving and able to, to deploy quickly is something that we're doing, and we want to do it to address different users across these different chains. And, and, and you know, a lot of us on the team believe that the the uh, multi-chain future, the, the the community that you know uh, we're serving, the multi-chain future is the community we're serving. So no matter where you are as a user, 
there should be a cream market that you could use. And especially as we've seen that the Ethereum layer one gas has priced a lot of users out. Uh, a lot of folks are using cream on, on BSC and, and uh, you know, to a lesser degree on Polygon and Phantom. But I think making the, the, the product available is, is very important. And especially in these more niche markets, there may be some niche needs that uh, some of the other protocols don't want to serve. And also, you know, you see how uh, chains will eventually or has started already and is eventually going to specialize. And then we, we would need to basically work with our community to ensure that the, the way we're addressing these needs are, are specifically targeting use cases that are useful for the various users on those chains. So one of the challenges we're, we're running into now is actually making sure that we have proper domain expertise across all these chains, which is actually really hard to do, right? Like some, even some of your most degen farmers may not be farming across all of these chains all at once. They may say, well, you know, I was playing here in chain A and I've mostly now in chain B for this reason and, you know, et cetera. Yeah, what kind of issues or, or challenges does Cream run into when trying to deploy onto a layer two or side chain or different chain altogether? <laughs> So, right, I initially when you hear, oh, well, this one's EVM compatible, that one's EVM compatible, and it seems intuitive for you to just think, yeah, well, so then what do you do? Just take the thing and just deploy it and you're done, right? Not not that easy. I, I honestly, I could say that I, I thought that until our team started doing it, and then we started looking at this going, oh, like there are certain edge cases and things as you start deploying, you start seeing this thing. Like Binance Smart Chain was really easy. They, did, they were just more or less, you know, directly EVM compatible, and so was Polygon. Uh, Phantom had, had some slight uh, characteristics with the way that the consensus mechanism worked there, where the block time, basically, the, the, some some of the blocks can end up having the same timestamp, but so then you, you ended up having to kind of uh, develop around that. But our developers were able to, to solve that problem, and that's fine, at least from a technical development layer. But I think from a business standpoint, the challenge there is to stay on top of the, the communities on those chains all the time because things are shifting so fast in crypto, generally speaking. But then when you start looking at each individual chains, ecosystems pop up or, or focuses pop up. And, and then you start end up having like, um, like, for example, Binance Smart Chain is actually a lot more Mandarin language friendly uh, based on the user base in Asia and Chinese speaking. And um, and then they end up they end up using a different set of tokens sometimes, and then uh, then maybe what you have on on Ethereum or, or, or Phantom or, or Polygon. So the ability to keep up to the latest and greatest is somewhat challenging, and so we're actually relying a lot on on our community and the folks around us basically tell us, you know, maybe these are the things you guys should be exploring and thinking about, and just to actually just to put that out in the open as well. Uh, you know, anybody in the community certainly you guys are welcome to. Hit us up on on Twitter or or uh, Twitter DM or, or tweet at us or me individually. We're always happy to take in feedback. Yeah, and I feel like there are a lot of people in the Ethereum community who don't think too highly of the Binance Smart Chain. True. What would you say to those individuals? I, I think you know. I think that's that's kind of a miss, to be honest, because I, I think it's it's like it's it's almost like a, a you know not in my backyard type of thinking. And so there's definitely a lot of like finding a smart chain, much like the the new kind of NFT boom. All of these things that bring a new set of users into DeFi is important because eventually. You know, users might come in through Polygon, through BSC, or just flipping, you know, JPEGs. It doesn't really matter. Whatever it is, people get into DeFi, people get into Ethereum. Uh, they come through different routes. So I do think that, especially in a situation where gas is pricing people out, you do need these alternatives. And now, specifically to Binance Smart Chain, there's a lot of talk about centralization, but we at Cream do run one of the 21 validator nodes. So at least I could tell you that that one node that we run is not controlled by CZ. But this is also true with a bunch of the other node runners, but I can specifically guarantee the one that we run is is not controlled by CZ or the, or, or the Binance team. So I think the, the kind of not sufficiently decentralized narrative about BSC, I think it's short-sighted. I think the more EVM compatible chains out there with interesting experiments and deployments are happening, the more we're able to address different user needs, the more we're able to experiment quicker and evolve faster and learn faster as a uh, as, as, a, as an industry. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, it's okay, though, if people don't want to use it. But at the same time, to say that it's it's like not additive to the industry, I, I think um, is, is wrong. So Cream also allows for ETH2 staking on yes. protocol too. Can you just explain how that works? Yeah, I, I think 
So along with the four apes by apes concept that we started off with, there was a point where the team started talking about like ETH staking and we started talking to other folks that are participating. Hey, you know, what, what about this ETH staking coming up? Like, do you guys care about that? Do you want to do something about this? So this was around, you know, November last year or so. And we started thinking, hey, why don't we run our own nodes? So it first started out with like, a few folks saying, well, we'll, we'll run our own nodes and we'll kind of gather our own batches of 32. We'll make it work. And it's like, okay, so, okay, but once we do this, like, can we borrow against it? Because we're, we're a lending protocol. Like, uh, no, I don't think so. Like, well, why don't we just tokenize it, enable it as a collateral, then that way you can have your stake and eat it too, right? It's about building toward the need of DeFi user. And the DeFi user, user in this case happens to want to stake for ETH2 and also be able to borrow against it, then yeah, we offer it. And that's what we did. So, um, and we also too, I think to add to that, we added another twist recently announced, we call this boosted savings program. So it's it's just launched last week on Binance Smart Chain. So if you're on the app.cream.finance and you point at your MetaMask to, to Binance Smart Chain, You'll be able to deposit your BNB in there for roughly what looks like 4% interest rate right now. And then on for the supply side, and then in addition to that, you'll also get an additional kind of liquidity mining looking like airdrop, like you do get comp tokens on the on the compound, uh, except in this case, it would be BNB and it would be BNB that is uh, that is earned from validator node participation. So we saw that there was a bit of idle capital in the pool. And we saw that uh, folks wanted to be able to delegate, but didn't want to deal with the complexities of delegating and also deal with the seven day kind of cooldown period for withdrawal unbounding. So we, we effectively used the BNB market as liquidity for buffering that unbounding seven days, as well as take some of it put into the delegating service and then distributing back all the additional yield to uh, folks on uh, that are supplying BNB on Binance Smart Chain Cream. So that program, I think, is pretty well received. We, we've seen our delegated node position go from like number 20 to like number six or eight today. So I think lesson learned there is we should deploy the same program once E2 goes live and that we would do the same thing where users on Ethereum should be able to uh, assume all works out because not all the details released yet about E2. But once that's out and we successfully test this, we would also offer it so Ethereum-based uh, Cream users that deposit ETH can also then uh, not only get the lending protocol proceeds, but also can be uh, sharing some of the some of the uh, staking rewards, so that it becomes another stream of yield in addition to. And then of course, to top it all that all off, you don't need to wait for the unbound period to withdraw, and you can also use it as collateral to borrow against, which are which are all pretty good features. And we would, um, we're also looking now at rolling out this boosted savings program for other proof of stake networks that we're working on. And, you know, where it makes sense, where it's safe, uh, we would definitely do that so that our users can get an additional way to get yield. Okay. Yeah, and y'all are on Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, Polygon, and now Arbitrum. Yeah. Do y'all have any other plans uh, to expand and what might be next? Yeah, we're uh, Moonbeam. We're looking at Moonbeam now. Uh, I think the, the Polkadot ecosystem is very interesting, and I don't think anybody knows what to expect here. They're definitely like looking at Polkadot, uh, well, Kusama for now, I guess. That That's an interesting place. And I, I, I think that there should be a good amount of DeFi activity there. And what I'm really looking forward to is the fact that I think the user base on Polkadot may not be, uh, may not have as high of a crossover as the, the user base between, say, Ethereum uh, layer one versus something like Polygon or Arbitrum or, or even Binance Smart Chain. I mean, even though that, that set of users is a little bit further away from uh, layer one Ethereum. I mean, we've been supporting Polkadot on the BSC side. And there's users can already deposit the, the Binance wrapped versions of that there. Uh, but certainly going on to Kusama and uh, with uh, with Moonbeam and Moonriver is super exciting. That's interesting. I haven't heard a lot of projects looking at the Polkadot ecosystem, or I guess Ethereum native projects looking at the Polkadot ecosystem. So that's... Yeah, you, you'd be surprised. I think, uh, well, Sushi announced, so that one is... Uh, but then they're on a lot more chains too, generally speaking. But yeah, you'd, you'd be surprised to see how many projects are already building in that direction. Yeah, I, I feel like Sushi is just growing so fast and in so many different directions. It, it's hard enough for me to just keep track of them alone, much <laughs> less uh, anything else that's going on in the DeFi space. And yeah. kind of on that note, how do you keep up with everything that's going on in the DeFi space? Like, What, what does your news funnel look like? 
Yeah, I mostly look at uh, Twitter, actually. I think I've been curating a list of people, uh, crypto Twitter people to follow on my own Twitter. And um, it just so happens to be 100 people, but it's, it's not meant to be some kind of like my top 100 crypto Twitter influencers or anything like that. But um, I use that list to to inform my newbie friends getting into into to crypto and say, you know, this is the best way I, I tell people like, look, this is the Bloomberg terminal. Like Twitter is the Bloomberg terminal for crypto. So you want the latest and fastest news. You got to go there. Uh, but besides that, talking to industry people as well, conversations like these sometimes surface things I didn't know and keeping a curious mind and being humble about it and being okay to say like, oh, well, you know, actually that's an interesting protocol you mentioned. I hadn't heard of that's uh, yeah. Let me find out. Um, and I also have to credit a lot with uh, the Yearn ecosystem has taught me a lot. Uh, the ability to kind of be in these conversations with the Yearn strategist and speaking with Andre about different kind of uh, product development things has been has been quite a pleasure. It's talking with the folks in our own Cream community, talking to the folks on the Cream uh, team that's building and stuff. Uh, yeah, basically talking to industry people. But Twitter is is a good source, and then Telegram groups, and then you know, Discord channels with different various projects and, and investor groups. Uh, there's so much information. I feel like I'm constantly behind on my messages on, on Telegram and, and Discord. Yeah, and in staying on that that subject a little bit, what projects are catching your eye lately that maybe some people might not know about? Wow. You know, I, I think that the uh, the set of like, so Daniele from uh, Tether has been doing some you know, the, the uh, magical internet money, I think, is really interesting, actually. Um, it, it's a little bit a lesser-known project for, for a lot of people, but, you know, the idea that you can basically have CDPs across all the various chains that they're deploying is super interesting. Um, you know, you can use the Iron Bank tokens on Ethereum now to basically use as collateral to mint uh, magical internet money, the MIM tokens, and MIM tokens. It would be the same as like like on MakerDAO, you would put ETH down or any other asset there. You could put Ether, you could use Wi-Fi, you could use one of the other tokens. But on magical internet money, you can actually use the Iron Bank, the Yearn Vault, uh, the YCRV IB token. So the Yearn Vault Curve Iron Bank token. You use that as collateral, and you can degen the heck out of that one, which is, you know, be careful, kids. But <laughs> that's an option, and that's super interesting. Yeah, that's that's one that I haven't quite heard of yet. Yeah, it's uh, you going under um, abracadabra.money. I've got some stuff in there, yield farming, but generally speaking, yeah, it's it's like I'm definitely attracted to the degen, and for myself, I, I degen a little bit harder than the stuff that I want you know to tell people to do. Um, <laughs> so please be safe, uh, but but at the same time, that one's super exciting because they've gone ahead and basically looked at other credible collateral that you can use. That's not on the main, you know, maker list of safe assets to collateralize for for Dai, and I guess that that's similar to the approach that we took, you know, looking at Compound and Ave, saying, yeah, you guys have some really cool tokens, but look, there's a whole set of long tail things out there that you could and should be addressing, and Abracadabra.money is doing exactly that. Well, I'll definitely have to check that one out, and uh, it looks like we're kind of running up on time a little bit, but I've got two yep. more questions for you. Sure, please. Uh, so. Kind of recent news, uh, the poly market uh-huh. hack or exploit, whatever you want to call it. I feel like it was really interesting because on crypto Twitter or my feed on crypto Twitter, no one really knew what poly market was. Right. It, you know, uh, 600 million in TVL, and I, I had never heard of it, and a lot of people hadn't. And I think it turned out that it was more of like a, an Asian play, really. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that since you are in, are you in Singapore? Is that where you are? Taipei. 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 First, just your thoughts on the poly market hack exploit. And then do you feel like there's a big disconnect between the West, because you were from San Francisco originally, and now now you're yep. in Taipei. Is there a disconnect between the two crypto Twitter worlds or the crypto worlds? Yeah, oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I think it's uh, my observation was that back in 2017, it wasn't like that. So back in 2017, you know, language barriers aside, when you went into like uh, the WeChat groups, people spoke Chinese, uh, type Chinese, whatever. They were talking about the same things, Bitcoin, Ether. And I remember back then, too, my my friends, my Western Western friends, my North America, European based friends were also talking about the same thing. Bitcoin, Ether. Uh, oh, look, you know, Ant token is transferring to become NEO. And then, you know, these other tokens. And then then the 2018, like China banhammer came on crypto. 
and then the the kind of east west uh, groups of crypto not crypto Twitter but uh, crypto crews seem to have bifurcated more since that 2018 ban, and you know then they started doing the other thing. And Chinese are calling zijingpan uh, in mainland China, where they're mainly talking about you know other tokens on like like there was one called Pegasus on MXC and all these other tokens that the that mostly English speaking crowds haven't heard of. So yeah, I definitely agree that it's a huge divide, and I'd rather it not be like that because I think innovation would be would move faster if we all go back to the world where. We, no matter your language that you speak or where you are in the world, would then be talking about you know more or less the same thing. So the poly market ecosystem is one of the neo and ontology ecosystem, which is you know again more like the Chinese language community, and so that's why people in the West haven't heard of it. But yeah, of course, six hundred some million dollars, like you can't hide that amount of money, right? Like that's a significant amount of money, and really odd that the English speaking world uh, in, in mainly North America and Europe haven't heard about it or talked about it. But I, I think that's that's um, it's a point of improvement for us as an industry. But at the same time, uh, based on geopolitical uh, divides, uh, these divides continue to happen. But I think as an industry, if we can continue to, to help each other out there, uh, that would be a very good thing. And, and that's what I like to see. It's just this more communication across. I mean, I, I don't even know how much help if any, that the poly market exploit could have gotten if they were more like Western aware and, and such, but or the West was more aware of it, etc. Like uh, I think certainly the English speaking community are a lot more collaborative when it comes to exploits and things. Okay, interesting. Well, yeah, I appreciate all of your time. We're running yeah. up on time here. And uh, is there anything else that you want to touch on or anything you want to talk about before we let you go? You know, I, I was thinking, yeah, I've been really, actually, this is not exactly a project that somebody else's project and most people haven't heard of, but the most recent innovation in the Iron Bank is the Iron Bank Fix 4X. So that's something that Andre's been tweeting about, but very little people, very few people understand. And it, it's like, what is it? Why is it there? What does it mean? What is it going to do? And how the heck do you farm these IBFF tokens? And, you know, can you make, make some yield off of that, et cetera? Um, I know that might in itself be a, a separate topic in itself, but I, I, de I definitely think that, you know, in like a two-week period, the, the IBFF ecosystem has now grown to about 60, 60 plus million dollar TVL. Um, exploring the space that is allowing basically users to have a scenario where they don't have to go through multiple hops and they, they can they can go ahead and example, for example, a, a user in Korea now potentially or someone who uses the KRW fiat money, you know, instead of going through and saying, oh, I, I have some Ether uh, collateralized and I, then I'm going to have to borrow like USDC and then change that USDC to Korean won so then I can then pay my, you know, IRL bills with Korean won. This user could potentially just take that Ether, deposit it into Iron Bank, borrow the synthetic version of the KRW and then kind of work it through the DeFi pipes to not have to expose to multiple hops or to any kind of fluctuations between you know, their local currency, in this case, Korean won with the US dollar, that's sort of an unnecessary hop in the middle that we as an industry have put in there for all the users globally. I mean, as someone who uses the US dollar regularly, like you don't really think of it that much. But when you start taking yourself out of that US dollar denominated world, and whether you're in the euro world or Korean won or anything else, I think that is a very useful thing that I am really excited to see how this thing evolves even in the next month. Yeah, I think that touches on what you said of there's just so much going on. It's hard to keep up. Yeah. And working with the YFI team and just how sharp everyone is over there, that sounds like a pretty impressive development from the YFI team, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, we're, we're going to let you go. But before we do, where can people go to find out more about you and Cream Finance? Twitter. We do most of our talking on Twitter, and I do share random thoughts on Twitter as well. So I'm, I'm Leo, L-E-O-K-C-H-E-N-G on Twitter. And then on Twitter for uh, the project is cream.finance on Twitter. I certainly encourage, if, if those of you haven't seen the uh, Method Man video, go on our Twitter and at least go listen to that track. It's about a minute and a half, and I think it's uh, it always gets me pumped every time. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those of y'all who don't know, Cream is a play on a song, Cash Rules Everything Around Me, but instead, That's right. it's Crypto Rules Everything Around Me, which for me, at least it does. So, all right, uh, <laughs> Leo, thanks for coming. Thanks for everyone in the audience listening. Hope everyone has a great rest of your week. And thanks for joining us on Conversations with the Co-op. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks. Bye, Leo.